Good morning, church. Thank you, Fred. I hope you're all doing well, uh, like Miss Leslie. I hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day, and I hope that uh, your team won, as long as the same one I was rooting for. <clears throat> and if not, bless your heart. Anyway, we're so glad you're here. If you're a guest today or watching online for the first time, I'm Ray, one of the pastors here. Our pastor of discipleship, Stefan, is away. He just got in this weekend from a long 10-day trip to Israel, and so he is spending time with his family, which I know we all embrace and are grateful for him doing that and grateful that he could go and be part of this trip, which was planned several years ago, uh, and this thing called COVID happened, and so now they're finally catching up and he was able to go. So we're grateful. Um, if you're not going to the pancake supper tonight, you're the only one in Burlington, uh, just so you know. Uh, and I don't know what that'll mean for your future, but it will be bleak if you can't go. So just saying, no threat, just letting you know, uh, Lizzie, you and your team, all that Sunday school has done an amazing job of getting the word out. So we will be in Raleigh and coming in, so we will probably not be there at five, but we will be there. So if you don't see me, you'll call me. Okay, great. Thank you, Lizzie. Uh, this Romans passage is not new to those of us who have been part of a church for any time at all. But for some, it can be a little squirrely. So let's hear, and we'll talk about it just a little bit, Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own, but but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage through decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. May God bless the reading of this passage. One little note, oh, they went to Children's Church. Our grandniece is here today, and we just love little Sibby. So you'll see Jill with little Sibby, and she loves everybody, and she is not shy, so she might come running up to you and say, did you see my grunkle? That's what she calls me, is grunkle. And that stands for great uncle. Not in chronology, just I'm a great uncle. That's what that means, just so you know. Romans 8, 28 is one of the, again, one of the most well-known verses in, in the Bible. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God. 
But for some, that verse is a source of tremendous hope. But for others, it can feel like salt on their open wounds. For those who have suffered greatly, it can be difficult to imagine what kind of good might arise from their tragic, hurtful situations. What silver lining is there when a couple loses a child or loses a child to miscarriage? What possible good could come from a father abandoning his family to start over with a new one? What greater good is God up to when a car accident leaves a teenager paralyzed? Romans 8.28 is supposed to be a verse of comfort, but in the midst of profound suffering, sometimes people still feel abandoned by God, rejected, maybe even cursed. Why me? Have you ever dealt with someone in this kind of situation? Have you been one of those in that kind of situation? Have you ever gone through something like it yourself? Here's the bad news. If you haven't, you will at some point in your life, some bad things happen. And when you do, you'll need to remember this Romans 8, because it can be hope in the midst of suffering. Today's the last message on this series of hope, hope's responsibility. Hope doesn't come with just like magical wand or fairy dust. It comes with some parameters which you and I get to participate in. But there are some promises that go with hope as well, and we can find them in this Romans text. In verse 29, Paul brings up the word, the P word, that we Methodists don't like to talk about much because we get all cattywampus with our Presbyterian friends. We have several recovering Presbyterians in here this day, (laughs) and you are loved. But for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God. Now, Paul's not trying to start a theological argument here about Calvinism. Calvin was mostly right, but a couple things wrong that Wesley fixed on. But anyway, he's trying to give us assurance is what Paul is trying to do because he goes on, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Paul knows that those who are suffering, it often feels like, You're barely holding on. But in the midst of your suffering, you have this assurance, what God started in you, God is going to finish. Nothing will stand in the way of that. God will finish. When you feel like you're barely holding on to God, be assured that God's still holding on to you and God promises that you too will be glorified. When my boys were little, we had a standard bedtime ritual. If I were home, I always put them to bed. And I would say, I love you. Now, do you know why daddy loves you? Does daddy love you because you're brave? No. I'd say, that's right, daddy doesn't love you because you're brave. Now, daddy, does daddy love you because you're smart? No, daddy. But we are smart. Yes, you're smart. That's right. But that's not why I love you. And I'd go through whatever hit my head, strong, brave, kind, etc. And eventually I'd ask you, so why does daddy love you? And at this point they'd say, because I'm your son. Exactly. 
I've set my love on my sons, and I'm never taking it from them. They can never do anything to separate my love from them. That's what God, that's just a small little piece, not even worthy to mention how much God has done and loves you and me. You are a beloved, beloved child, and your father knows you and knows you in your suffering and in your pain and in your frustrations and your anger and your hurt and your guilt. Whatever else is happening in your life, be sure that your Lord in heaven hasn't and will not ever leave you alone in it. You are God's child and God's heart is bound up in your heart. What you feel, God feels. When you weep, God is weeping. That's the way the God we know who loves us carries forward. People who quote Romans 8, 28 often overlook the rest of the verse, which may be the most important because it has something to say about the, what comes before. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. Now, what is that purpose? Well, we have to go back. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You see, God's purpose in your life and my life is to make us more like his son, Jesus the Christ. The, the, the good Romans 8 talks about is not giving you better circumstances as if every bad event will automatically lead to a, a, a one greater later on, make things better. No, the good of Romans 8 is God making you and I a better you and I. That is more like Jesus, his son, the Christ. Invariably, at every moment, God is working toward that in our lives. That painful chapter in your marriage, that betrayal at work, that chronic illness you're dealing with, all of it, God redeems. God didn't put upon you, but God takes that and redeems it to make a more godly you if you so say yes. And there will come a time if you submit to God in faith, when you see that all those painful chapters, all the heartache, all the tears, all the disabilities, all the disadvantages, disappointments were redeemed by God for one purpose, to make you and me into the image of God. You see, Paul says that creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now when we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. You see, there is a physical redemption coming and our bodies literally groan for it for a young, healthy, privileged person, that may not sound fantastic, but for those of us who have hit kind of the senior citizen's age, for the sick, for the hurting, this groaning is a daily reality. Today is Transfiguration Day, Sunday. And it's a time when Jesus had died, has been crucified, and is resurrected, and he is seen as the Messiah in the heavens. And it is Christ that our groaning is a promise that our bodies will one day be redeemed like his, and not just back to the days of our youth, but to a body like Christ's resurrected body. We won't ache or get sick or even struggle with weight. Thanks be to God. I don't understand everything there is to know about what is waiting on us in heaven, but Paul says that in the light of the glory experienced there, even the worst of circumstances in our life will seem like momentary light afflictions. Now, Paul isn't trying to minimize our present suffering. He was, after all, a person who suffered greatly himself. 
He was trying to give you and I hope for a day when that suffering will be swallowed up in something greater. Indeed, you may not see it even in this life, but not in a single second of your suffering is wasted or will be ignored. Not one thing happens in your life that the goodness of our God will not one day transform into redeemed glory. In a world consumed by pain, corruption, and futility, this hope is the hope you can cling to for life. Part of the good news here is that this hope does not, does not, depend on me or you or anybody else manipulating things or making things better. No, this hope is all based on Jesus the Christ. Every single bit. You can't earn it. You can't make it happen. You can't work for it. No, God just gives it. At one time, I thought that I would try to be a little bit like Jim Pace and get a PhD and teach. By the way, next week, Sunday the 26th, be in Aldersgate around 10 o'clock, 9.45, he'll be teaching us all during Lent um, on the text, the book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And if you've not heard Jim teach, you know, the only way I, I have thought about this, how do I describe him? I've only had a few teachers like him and they are gifted and anointed to teach. And boy, do they do it and do it well. So make sure you go, you're here early, and you take part and bring all your friends, cousins, relatives, and enemies to come and join us. And speaking of teaching, I thought, I thought, well, maybe that's what I want to do. And so I was trying to really get great grades. And so <clears throat> I worked hard and worked hard, and I had a Pauline theology class with Dr. Mickey Eford. Some of you know Mickey Eford. He's also my advisor, one of the greatest men on earth. His teaching actually reminds me of Jim's. There are a lot alike in their teaching styles. And I took a course, I don't know, it was probably my second semester at the end of that year, probably the second semester of my second year in Pauline theology, which Dr. Eford was an expert in. We got our test, our blue books. Some of you remember the blue books. They told us to bring five or six blue books for our test. That alone would give anyone an ulcer. And so the preceptor was there and handed out the test, and we opened our book. We said, open your blue books and begin. You have three hours. Good luck. The first question on that exam was, tell me everything you know about Romans 8. Historical context, deep meanings of deep words, what his purpose was, and what did Paul intend. Have you ever read all of Romans 8? Have you ever studied all the history and the Greek and all that? Have you ever studied all of that? You could hear <gasps> in the room. We're at Duke Divinity School and we experienced hell in room 209. It wasn't funny at the time. I resent you laughing about it. It was not fun. 
We worked hard, we worked hard, and we all just panicked and sweat over our brows. Turned those things in. Got my test back a couple of weeks later or so. And I guess it was actually the first semester because, no, anyway, it doesn't matter. I made a D. At this point, I was thinking I wanted to go on for a PhD, and I figured, oh, well, kiss that goodbye. And so I was just distraught, upset. And I felt, well, you know what? If I can't pass Pauline theology, then what am I doing here? And I began to question, I don't fit in here. I don't have the brains for this. Why am I here? They let me in on a fluke. All those things that might run through your head when things aren't going well. What didn't I do? What should I have done? Why are you doing this to me, God? I know none of you ever had any of those thoughts, but they ran through my mind, as they often do today. I was walking down the hallway right in front of the hallway where many of the professor's offices were, and lo and behold, Dr. Eford's office door was open, and sitting behind that desk amongst millions of books, I don't know any professor I've ever met that keeps a neat office, but anyway, it was books everywhere. And I went past his office, and then I turned around, and I said, Dr. Eford, may I speak with you? Sure. And I said, I did horribly on your test. Oh, certainly not. I said, yes, sir, I did. I did. He said, well, what did you make? I made a D. And he said, oh. He said, huh. And I just told him, I said, you know, I was thinking maybe I'd get a PhD. I didn't want to anyway, and so... He and I talked, and we just talked, and we talked about Pauline theology, and we talked about this and that, and Paul meant all that sort of stuff, and, and he said, uh, you know, these grades haven't been recorded yet. He said, uh, do you have that blue book? I said, yes, sir, I had the blue books. He said, hand them here. He said, you know, I just went through that whole test with you. It seems to me that you know it pretty well. Would a B be acceptable to you? I said, what? <laughs> well, would a B be acceptable? Because I just went through that whole test with you, and you answered every single thing really well. You got a little harmonical. He told me, you got this a little wrong, or you probably could have made an A. But I'm like, all I heard, I said, I didn't care about making an A. I made a B. Thanks be to God. I, I wanted to kiss him right there. I wanted to say, hallelujah, praise God. There is a Lord in heaven. All because Dr. Eford was willing to take time to talk and to listen and understand the pain, the hurt, the guilt, and the hope that I had. And he said, well deserved. Those words changed my trajectory there. It loosened me up. I didn't take things quite as seriously as I took my studies seriously, but I didn't take me as seriously. And there became a liberation in that. And I began to see these professors as wonderful men and women who wanted me and everyone to succeed. It was hope made good in reality in the world. What time? It's time for me to get quiet in it. Do you have time for one more story? If not, we can stop and go home. Survey says yes, so.
Years ago, <clears throat> it's 2006, a little girl was born. Her name was Joey. Her mom and dad are Leslie and Andreas Hepner. Wonderful couple. Just wonderful. We knew them in Wilmington, and that's where we got to know their family, her mom and dad, and just wonderful. We love those people. And Joey, I had the opportunity to baptize little Joey, just a gorgeous little girl, everything just right. And soon after we left there, a couple of years after we left uh, uh, Wilmington, uh, Andre and Leslie had triplets. Went from a family of three to a family of, I remember, three and four. How many is that, seven? And so they had, I didn't, they, we didn't take math at divinity school, thanks be to God. So anyway, so they had seven. So um, they came up to Chapel Hill so that I could baptize their three children. And so I did. It was wonderful. It was in October of 2008, thereabouts. They were all joining together their families for Thanksgiving. And so, anyway, everybody in the family over Thanksgiving got sick with some sort of virus. They even thought maybe it was food poison, but no, it wasn't that. It was just this virus. And so then uh, they all got sick, and then they called, and they said, hey, play, pray for little Joey. She is really sick, and we're taking her to the hospital. They took her to the hospital. She continued to get worse, not better. The hospital there in Wilmington, New Hanover, they <clears throat> sent their little baby to UNC. And little Joey's put in intensive care. Come to find out, the virus that walked through their whole family had attacked little Joey's liver, and it was failing. They called me. I went over there. Of course, we were living in Chapel Hill. I went over there. It was about a week long, and the last time that I saw them, I said, look, you guys, grandmas, grandpas, Leslie, Andre, I said, why don't y'all go downstairs and just get them to eat? I'll stay here with her. I have your phone. If anything happens, just like the rest of the ICU, we'll call you immediately. And so Joey wanted me to read her a story. So I started reading her story, and she had a fit. I didn't know that they, when they read her a story, they got up in her bed in her crib with her. And so they said, Ray, you might as well get in there. She's going to keep having a fit. So little Joey and I sat and held her and read her story after story. It was one of the greatest gifts of my life. You probably know where this is going. Little Joey's liver failed, and they didn't get a transplant soon enough, and she died, age two. Mother couldn't hardly stand it. I can remember hearing the groanings and the crying and the fear. I didn't know what to say to them. Their pastor in Wilmington didn't. What do you say to a couple in something like that? Nothing I can say. But these two kids, Andreas and Leslie, in their late 20s, they knew God well. They called me one day, told me about some stuff they were doing. They said, hey, we're doing this, this, we're doing... A Joey's run to raise money for, for UNC Children's Hospital to help kids in need. I said, that is awesome. So I talked to them more and they said, Ray, what we decided was the God we serve always gets the last word. And we refuse to be victims. And Joey's wings are God's wings and she's with God. She knows 
more about health and stability and promises than we know. This young couple, they leaned into this Romans 8. And they said, Ray, we refuse to let the circumstances of life define who we are in Christ. And we're going to lift up little Joey's name and everything we do. Today, even when we get their Christmas cards and their Easter cards, there's always these wings and it says, Joey's life. That was 15 years ago. And Joey is still growing strong in their life, in their children's life, in their family's life, because they see she, like Christ, brings hope. Is that incredible or what? And I often say how I wish and pray, Lord, I can be like Leslie and Andrea Hepner, so they can live out your promises found in your word. God, you promised it to them. They claim it, believe it, and trust you for themselves and their little girl. I was so glad that this guy that had often had problems sometimes in seminary and worked hard and still didn't get some things that a young couple taught me about the hope that comes from our Lord, which is not wishful thinking, but is guaranteed. Pray with me, if you will. Holy God, I thank you for the good news that you bring us. That indeed you do work out everything for good for those of us who trust and believe in you. Lord, so often that is difficult for me. But I thank you that you put people in my sphere. Like a Mickey Eford. And like Leslie and Andre and Joey. who continue to teach me about hope in your son today. May it be so in our own world, in our own sphere, as we learn about hope. In the name of your son, the Christ. Listen again to Romans 8, if you will. That's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present and hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same time, at the same moment in the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. The joyful hope gets broader. All around us we observe the pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pains. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're, we're also feeling the birth pains. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us. It is the hope. Any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectant hope. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside, helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. 
He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of the wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. Amen and amen.